What's up, everyone? You guys doing okay? Yeah? Okay. As Hannah was praying, I was thinking about that word grace. And we kind of define that word grace in this series. It is unmerited, undeserved gift. It's something you can't earn. I was just thinking about how that's exactly what it is when we get to gather together. It is a means of God's grace. Now, in a world that leaves us feeling isolated and alone, that we can gather with others who we don't have to put on a mask with, we don't, um, of pretending. We don't have to um, put on airs that we are something that we're not or that we're in a place that we're not. We can actually be real with one another. And as we do that, we can lift up a spiritual song. And it combines into one, um, one beautiful anthem to, to our Father. Anyway, that's what I was thinking about when she was praying. So thanks, Hannah, for praying. Okay, I have a question. Think right now, or now it's a statement. <laughs> Think right now of the dumbest thing that you've ever done simply because you believed you wouldn't get caught. Okay, think about it. I'll go first. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was in an accounting class and um, and one of my friends came up to my, uh, my computer workstation in accounting class and he asked me if I wanted to be able to go on MySpace from my, compute, my school computer. Um, now, as a refresher, MySpace is like the great grandpa to TikTok, okay? Um, what I should have said was, no, I'm cool. What I did say was, yeah, let's go. And so he went on because there was a firewall on the school computers that keeps us on educational websites. And he found a loophole in the system to exploit. And, uh, and these were the days, um, we were a few years away from smartphones becoming a regular reality. And so I like to go scrolling on my, my flip phone was not going to have nearly the same user experience, right? For MySpace. Now, um, for the next few months, I, I, I logged on and actually used it like once or twice. Like I didn't even, real, I didn't even love MySpace. And so it, it didn't really draw me onto it anyway. So I didn't really use this loophole, but, like I, but he said we wouldn't get caught. And I was like, yeah, let's do that. And so imagine my surprise when a few months later, I was in chemistry class and the vice principal's office calls me in and I go into the vice principal's office and I go in and sitting there at the desk is my vice, one of the vice principals and then my dad and then an investigator from the sheriff's department. I know. The officer let me know I didn't just break um, school policy, but I actually broke the law and... Uh, that was bad. And I started crying. Like I, I just, I just started crying. I didn't even know what to say or do. I was just like, like, just like crying. And I was like, you don't have to like, and he was like, this is how many years you can go away for. And I was like, why is this happening? And it was just, and then I look over to my dad and thinking, cause my dad, he's, he was a cop for a different agency and thinking like, dad, can you like say something like a character defense or something? And my dad was clearly not going to let me get away in this moment. He was going to let me sit in how situ serious the situation was. Now it wasn't like a scare tactic um, that I'm aware of. It was very real and I was just petrified. Um, none of us who uh, were caught in this obvious sting operation uh, 
were, were charged with the crime, thankfully. Um, but we were all suspended, and that also had implications for me on the football team, although I was on the bench, so it really didn't have great implications. <laughs> but nonetheless, do you think for me, in that mindset, I thought, man, that was worth it. No, absolutely not. It wasn't worth it at all. But I did it because I didn't think I was going to get caught. And it sounded fun and kind of rebellious. Like, yeah, MySpace on my accounting computer, my top eight. Now, whenever we do what we want to do, when it's the wrong thing, our misactions, at least in part, come from a mindset of a belief that we have calculated in our mind our likelihood of getting caught, of being found out. And we're like, yeah, it's worth the risk to some degree, right? That justice isn't going to come to me, that I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm really good at covering my tracks, something, but like, I'm not going to get caught. Now, if justice can be avoided or it's never going to come, then, then, then what's really left to stop me? Um, so that's the concept of external motivation. And so when we do things because we don't believe we're going to get caught, it's because we don't believe an external motivation is enough to stop us. Now, of course, this has led humanity in, uh, since the beginning into some really bad spots, right? This belief that I'm not going to get caught. I'm the one who figured it out. Um, and so this leads us to wars and genocides um, and to our context today uh, in like just normal everyday life, things like cheating in places of sports or business or fifth grade spelling tests, right? Like this idea, like I'm not going to get caught. Justice is never coming my way. And we see the devastating effects of lives without accountability throughout the scope of history. And it's scary and it's sobering to what we human beings are capable of when we don't believe that a day of justice is coming our way. Now, justice is a word that we use often in our world. And in the Old Testament, there's a few words that are used for justice, but all of them kind of come from this derivative concept um, to be translated into like an idea of if you're holding a bar, um, like, a, like a metal bar, and then you were to bend it. So like a bending of a metal rod is kind of the idea of what it means to have injustice. Justice is when something is true to its proper form, when it is right standing. To experience injustice is for that to be warped, twisted, knotted. And so justice is to restore to either be in upright form or to be restored to upright form. So when you think about if anyone's ever described you or somebody near you as like they're upright, uh, like they're an upright citizen, that concept is this, like they are just, they do things the right way. They are living a restored existence. Now, how do you think God perceives of the twistedness, the lack of uprightness? within our own hearts and minds and in our world around us. In your mind, do you, what, what do you think God's posture is to that moment? Do you think that he's like indifferent, far off? He doesn't really care too much. In your mind, is he like licking his chops? Like he's ready to pounce. He's like, screw up again and see what I do about it. Do you see God as someone who is grieving with us humans? Like he's crying about it with us, but he's not going to actually do anything about it. 
He's compassionate, but it's not going to lead him to action. He's either unable or unwilling to do anything about it. And that's, that's a real thing that each of us need to wrestle with because, because the scriptures talk about God being both good and great, having all the power and all the goodness. And yet we live in a world that's not good and it is not great. It's, it is planet death. And so when we are living in this, this world that's incomplete, that's twisted, that's warped, that's unjust, what do we do? How do we reconcile that with who God is? Or is it possible that he is up to something that we don't perceive in the midst of our darkened world? Like this image of an eclipse. Is his grace, is his gracious justice still present? Even when it doesn't look clear, it doesn't look as obvious. Is he ushering in gracious justice just beyond our perception? Now, this is what Peter is wrestling with in, uh, in 2 Peter as we begin a pattern of three kind of interconnected stories that are going to go back to the earliest pages of the Hebrew scriptures. And so what we're going to do for uh, the next three messages in this series is we're going to do a slow crawl for three weeks to do a mini series of sorts, focusing on three stories of God's gracious justice from a perspective that's very different than mine and probably yours naturally. Now we need to be reminded where we were at last week that there are false teachers in the midst of this church who are doing things in all the wrong ways. They are twisted. They are warped. They are smuggling into the church destructive myths about who Jesus is, what he has come to accomplish, and they're living lives counter to who the true master is, the one who's already purchased them. Even worse, they're influencing others as well. They're pretending to be masters, that they have unlocked some hidden truth, that if you just follow them, then you can live the good life as well. They're exploiting them with their false words. And so we'll pick up there from where we left off last week in Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. That's where we're tonight. So where we ended last week was, and in their greed, their false teacher's greed, they will exploit you with false words. And so we'll continue from there. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction, it's not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Pause. And that's our passage for tonight, y'all. Do you remember learning at some point in your educational journey about the concept of an if-then statement? Like if something, if, if there's a preposition that we assume to be true, this would be the natural consequences of that action. So if I go into Ohana and eat all the bread pudding that I deeply desire to eat, I then... I will waddle out of there every single time and I'm going to and I'm going to look both absolutely like devastated and also with a big smile on my face. It's going to be both for sure. That's the then part of the if. So this reads like an incomplete if then statement. Because what Peter's going to do is he's going to share three if stories. 
from the Hebrew scriptures. And then he's going to share a then statement that is based on what has already happened in the past. So we're starting tonight with the first if-then if then statement. Now, Peter left off with a reminder that justice will come. And that's important because apparently this is the opposite of what these false teachers were proclaiming to be true. They didn't think they'd ever get caught. And they're walking around going, hey, do you want to go on MySpace? Like that mentality, like, like, hey, I can, come here. I can sneak you in. Like, like I have something, you're going to want it. Come over here, come this way. They didn't think they'd ever get caught though. They were too sneaky. Or more specifically, they didn't believe the day of justice was ever going to come their way. And that's kind of what Peter's already unpacked in chapter one is all this, uh, this understanding that what they were saying, what these false teachers were saying about Peter and the rest of the apostles is that they were um, proclaiming cleverly devised myths about Jesus's return. That one day when Jesus will return, they're like, ah, cleverly devised myths. It's not going to happen. It hasn't happened. It's been 30 years since Jesus left the earth. It's not coming. It's not happening. And so they didn't believe that this, this concept that is a theme consistent throughout the, the um, Hebrew scriptures and into the New Testament, this concept known as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is kind of a catch-all phrase for this day of justice when, when the Messiah would come to reign for eternity. And it's the day of ultimate justice when all the broken, twisted knots that we humans have put into all of it, it's all straightened out. It's all made right again. But these teachers, they're saying, that's not happening. We don't have to worry about it. And at least you can say this about these false teachers. They were living consistently. Uh, Not only are they claiming none of this is gonna happen, they are clearly living as if this will never happen. They're doing things their own way based on what feels good to them, what makes sense to their own wisdom and intellect because they don't believe the external motivation of God's justice is even a thing. Now, there's external motivation. There's also internal motivation, right? That's what's going on inside of you. And each human being has a conscience, which helps us make decisions on our own terms about what is right and wrong. And sometimes those consciences line up with what God would say is right and wrong. And oftentimes it it doesn't. But each of our consciences are naturally bent out of shape by our human sinfulness. And so that means that each and every one of us can be deceived. And so these false teachers are greatly deceived. They, they could have convinced themselves in their heart of hearts, I am doing this the right way. Those, those guys, all knuckleheads. What they have to teach, it's all myths. We know the real thing. You need to listen to what we got. It's the good stuff. And so they are proclaiming it, refusing to believe externally that God will ever care or do anything about any of this. And what Peter says is, but their condemnation, it's not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. They think that 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 justice is never coming their direction. They have no clue what they're talking about. Now, side note, these are phrases, condemnation and destruction, that that hopefully there's like a twinge in you that when you read that, you're like, I I, I don't like that along with words like wrath or judgment, and and there's some others, right? 
And now, so far, I've talked a lot about the word justice. And the reason I'm using justice is not to um, avoid those other words and to use one that's less severe sounding, but in actuality, each of those other words are under the umbrella of justice. And so when we think of wrath or judgment or any of these concepts, our natural inclination is going to, th- to think that God is, is um, that he's throwing a fit, that he is acting irrationally, that he is doing something because he's just so mad, seething with anger at a broken and fallen world. But that's not God. He is a God of justice, according to the scriptures. And so the justice plays out in a number of ways. And in this story, we start seeing the picture of God's justice. Now, specifically, when it's talking about condemnation and destruction in this passage, he's talking about the type of justice that we could call retributive justice, okay? Retributive justice, this is what happens when somebody goes into a courtroom. They are arrested so that they can be stopped from doing something that is unjust, So for example, I stole $5 from you. I'm sorry about that, but I stole $5 from you. And so you reported me to somebody and I get arrested and I'm brought into a court situation because that's wrong in our land. You don't get to walk around stealing people's $5 whenever you feel like it. That's crooked. And so you need to make that way now straight. You need, so what I would need to do is I need to pay back the $5, um, probably do some community service or something because it's $5 or... Or there's another way this happens. It may be I was accused of stealing $5 by you, but I didn't steal the $5. And you just have it out for me, which I see that. Um, but you're, you're like, oh, I, I, I'm going to throw him under the bus here. Let's bring him up on charges. He stole $5 from me. Let's go. Now it's been discovered I didn't steal the $5 or some camera footage and it was somebody else who stole the $5. And now you put me out of all this time to sit here in this room and prove to you that I didn't steal the $5. And so retributive justice is needed in both of those cases. So it's both you, you're declaring that behavior is wrong and that it's been stopped and that it's begun to be recti- rectified. In other words, that there is punishment. Another big word would be recompense. Like these ideas that, that there is a consequence that must be dealt with. So this passage is about retributive justice, stopping what was wrong, stopping someone from bending the bar into more knots and beginning the work of setting it right again. Now, there's another mode of justice that's important to bring up. It's called restorative justice. And this is where we create codes, laws, which we live by, um, which we choose to live by. And the creation of those codes embody a vision of what is justice. So when we think of restorative justice is, okay, what is the right thing? Not focusing as much on the, the negative part, but like what is the positive ideal that we should be aiming for? And so this is the use of the word justice oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, when God is explaining how especially those in positions of power and authority and wealth should use their resources to care for the poor, the marginalized, and the hurting. Like in uh, Psalm 82, Uh, it is written where God is talking to a divine council and he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. So in other words, restorative justice is all about unbending what was bent, compassionately caring for others. Now, both retributive justice and restorative justice matter 
deeply. Because both methods God actively uses to unbend what was tied into knots by us humans, by our sinfulness. And one day, what the scriptures say is that there is the day of the Lord. The day when justice is going to reign, when all the evil things are undone and all the good things are set into motion for all of eternity. Now, it's important because Peter thought it was important. The reason Peter thought it was important is because he thought it was important that these false teachers understood that there is a real God who cares deeply about justice. And so he gives us this example from the earliest pages of Genesis, from Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, it's written this way. Um, And specifically, this is in context to the flood narrative. And this is kind of the prequel, kind of understanding what instituted and inaugurated the need for the flood. And so it says, verse 1, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. And now, that language is good stuff because back in Genesis Two, we find out that humanity, what we are called to do is to go and be fruitful and multiply. We are supposed to go and steward the earth well. And so that language is good stuff. Okay, they're doing the thing. They're multiplying on the land. But then the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wife as they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide with man forever for his flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Any of you ever read this part and just go, I'm so glad this is in the scriptures. Like that makes total sense. Like obviously, See, this is a story where there's just so much confusion and different perspectives uh, in our day and age that leads to a lot of speculation and confusion. Um, and for others of us, it just sounds so weird that let's just, like, let's just keep going on the story. Like, why camp out there very long at all? But for some reason, the Holy Spirit led Peter to use this exact example. Because for his original audience, this wasn't a story of confusion. It was actually a story where there was common understanding towards it. So it's different than where we are today. So what we need to do is we need to understand how did they understand this story? See, Peter and the Jewish listeners hearing the story written aloud would have all come from the same popular understanding of this story. Namely, that these sons of God represented in Genesis chapter six were another way to describe a broader umbrella concept of spiritual beings. Now, it's a broad, broad umbrella category that represents any type of spiritual being. It can be those who are doing the will of God. Uh, we normally refer to them as angelic messengers, um, like Michael and Gabriel and, and plenty of others. Or it could be those who are opposed to the will of God. Um, and those we typically refer to as Satan and the demonic forces of evil. And and. So in other words, this concept, the sons of God, is a phrase used in the Hebrew scriptures that does not tell us if they're the good guys or the bad guys. But their actions do. Their actions are what describes it for us. See, there were some greater levels of description in what Peter is writing here in in 2 Peter, right, than what Genesis said alone. And see, Peter is not only riffing on Genesis chapter 6, he is specifically directly lifting quotations from another text 
a popular book at that time that was well circulated called the book of First Enoch. Now, it's never been considered a book of the Bible in, um, in almost any tradition. There is one, um, only one sect of Judaism and Christianity that comes from a, a very rural part of Ethiopia that both considers it part of it. That's a rabbit trail. But all that to say, this has never been counted as authoritative scripture though. So why is Peter riffing on it then? Like, why is he bothering? Like, why, why use that language? Well, you see, these books like First Enoch were widely circulated and they, what they helped do is they would take a small story of the Hebrew scriptures and then they would kind of expand it with more detail. So kind of get, um, what it would do, it was stir and inform the cultural imagination of the Jewish people into the narratives in their scriptures. Now in First Enoch, it's written things that are very similar and things that are slightly, di- or slightly more, um, more information than what Genesis says. It says, in those days when the children of man had multiplied, it happened that there were born unto them handsome and beautiful daughters and the angels, the children of heaven, saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, come, let us choose wives of our, for ourselves from among the daughters of man and beget us children. And so these children of heaven, uh, if you continue on in the book of First Enoch, they are given another name. They're specifically referred to as the watchers. And the watchers were said to, in this space, they had left their post. Their job wasn't to influence, their job was to watch. And these, what happened is they left their post and they went to the human women, creating half human, half angel hybrids known as Nephilim. Is this getting weird for y'all? Yeah. So their reason, according to first Enoch and what it goes into is their goal was to pollute the line of Eve's children. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter three, you might remember that what was said to Adam and Eve was that one day a descendant will come from the line of Eve and this descendant will crush the head of the serpent. And that was what they were trying to fight against. So if you actually looked at the entirety of the scriptures, that is a consistent theme used over and over and over again. This idea that what God is doing is he is maintaining this messianic line from Adam and Eve all the way to the line where we get to Jesus. And all along the way, there are demonic forces who are trying to smash and annihilate that sacred line because they don't want the serpent's head crushed. They want to do things their way. And so according to First Enoch, their goal was to pollute the line so that there would be no pure um, children of Eve that could possibly go and one day crush that as serpent. Now as well, these watchers began to instruct humanity on a number of things, on how to make weaponry and how to perform witchcraft and other skill sets that would ultimately lead humanity towards further and further destruction. So in other words, these watchers, bad dudes in this. They are not good guys. They are not looking out for humanity. What they're trying to do is work towards humanity's ultimate destruction. And what these watchers are in First Enoch were reported to believe is that they could never get caught Justice was never coming in their direction. They could carry out this rebellious scheme and somehow pull this one past God and completely out for God's plan of redemption. 
That's the same mindset that you see with Jesus, right? When he is with Satan in the wilderness and the Satan comes to tempt him and, and he's trying to thwart God's plan. But like God isn't fully aware of all of this. It's like, yeah, good one. Let's see where this goes. So what ends up happening in this story is God ends up sending other spiritual beings, his angelic warriors, specifically Michael, uh, Gabriel, and Raphael. And they were, their job is to come and to bind up these watchers, throw them into a holding cell to wait for a future day of ultimate justice. If you're wondering, did this really happen? My head's spinning. I don't know what to do with this. Why are we even talking about this? I'm really weirded out. It's important to know first, we don't know what in that is factual or merely mythical because one thing we do know is it's not in the scriptures and that matters, at least, at least to me and those who believe that the scriptures are the authoritative word of God. So it's, it's not in the scriptures, but it apparently was an important enough story that Peter would utilize it to make a greater point. And so it's possible that this was, is it possible this is an accurate narrative? Yeah, m- Maybe. But ultimately, that's not what matters the most about its inclusion in this letter. It's not about how, it's about why. And so we need to look at why Peter's including this in his letter. See, this story, again, might be super weird for us today. And we're like, half demon hybrid. I don't know what, I don't even have a concept for that. But this is the opposite of what, this, of what these ancient people would have done. He was using this commonly known, commonly understood story to help these Jewish followers of Jesus come to a greater understanding of God's gracious justice to this greater why. And the great why for this passage is simply this. It is God's gift of gracious justice when he stops evil in its tracks. It is God's gift of gracious justice when he stops evil in its tracks. What Peter is saying is that God was not okay with these spiritual beings spreading evil into the world. They didn't get away with it. They thought they could pull one over. They thought they could escape justice. They thought they were quick enough and good enough and smart enough. But what he's saying is, that God is too good and too great to simply overlook their, overlook their wrongness. Instead, his justice is working even when humanity has zero clue about all this happening. You could imagine that if you were there, there's nothing in Genesis chapter six that tells us that the humans were aware of any of this really. That they would have had a concept of, oh, I think the angels are coming for the, oh, those were bad dudes. Oh, got it. I didn't, wasn't aware. Like we don't get any indication that they knew any of this was happening. Now, Peter uses another word here though. He talks about hell, but this is, this one's super interesting in Greek. It says, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That part is specifically quoted from First Enoch. But here's what's interesting. That part, that word hell that's used here is not a word hell that is used in any other place in the scriptures. It's technically not what we envision when we perceive of hell. Hang with me. It's a Greek word called Tartarus. Now, Tartarus, if, if your Greek mythology is really on point, um, then, or you just watched Hercules recently, Tartarus is the place where the Titans are kept, okay? It was the place where spiritual beings who are the big bads are kept and held um, by the mythical gods. Now, it's not saying that it was literally the same place, but what Peter is doing is here is he is using a phrase that made sense to their cultural imagination. 
that there was a place where spiritual beings were held in waiting until final judgment when they would be, as you find out in Revelation, cast into the lake of fire. So like all of that was an interesting understanding. All that to say, Peter is being very understanding of who he's writing to and the cultural influences that are around them because these were Jewish followers in the midst of Roman, Greco-Roman context. They were the people of the diaspora. And so this spiritual location is simply defined as this, whatever it is, it is a, a place of holding and binding for destructive spiritual beings. It's a place of justice until final justice. And so Peter's using this ancient story to bring the imaginations of these hearers that God's justice does not go on forever. In fact, he was willing to cast some of his own spiritual beings into a place of binding until final justice would commence in order to protect his humans. Now, all that is the if. So now let's go back. Now let's get to the end. In verse 9 and 10, we get the then statement. What can we know now based on what has already happened in the past? So start from verse 4 again. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Skip down to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. We'll get to that next week and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Let's pause there. What Peter is saying is essentially this. If God was willing to stop evil in its tracks all the way back in Genesis 6, then we know for a fact he will stop evil in its tracks in our story today and every day into the future. That doesn't mean that everything's gonna be perfect. That doesn't mean that it doesn't look like evil ever wins in our world. It does. Broken things continue to happen in our world. What it does mean is God's not okay with it and there will be a day when evil will be defeated forever and evil will not get the last word. And that should be a very good thing. I get goosebumps up here talking about that. Like, guys, this should excite our hearts. When we look at the brokenness and devastation in our world, when we look what is happening in different parts of the world or right here in the U.S. of A., wherever you look in the brokenness in our families, in our relationships, there will be a day when God will take the twistedness of humanity and not do away with us completely, but he, his desire is to express his divine love, to make straight what was meant to be meant straight all along, to make good what is meant to be good, to redeem and to restore all those who he would call to himself and to remake the world. Now that's hard for us to imagine, right? Because we look at our world and injustice experienced in every corner of the globe. So we look around and we're like, okay, you're using some obscure if, but what about like an if today? Can you use an if from today, like in our day and our age? Why not now? I think that's a fair question to wrestle with. And I'm not coming with an easy answer to it. But what, what Peter is saying, because again, Peter, was, Peter is in prison, about to be executed by one of the most psychotic emperors imaginable in Nero, his 
his day, he's not riding from a place of like, it's all panning well for me, right? Like he is like riding this in a place of pain and subjugation and eventual death. So he's not riding as if everything's turning out okay in his own story. What he is saying though is, this is what I'm holding on to. And you know what's interesting? Um, when I've gotten the chance to uh, live overseas in China and, and be around uh, believers who are in different expressions and under, facing different levels of persecution, what you experience and when you read throughout history, the types of passages that today and in the past that were the most meaningful are these ones. If you look in the writings and the spirituals that were sung by, um, by slaves who were victims of the transatlantic slave trade, these are the passages they hung on to. A day when glory would come, when the right, when the wrong things would all be undone, when justice would finally be here forever. Now, our world is enmeshed with injustice, but the day of justice is coming. This day when all the broken things of this world are undone with, when when ultimate judgment. And now when you think of judgment, what comes to your mind? You only think of like a negative judgment because here's the thing. Judgment is two, twofold. It is both a calling out what is broken, but it is also a calling of what is right. And God is judging the world. And when he does... You don't have to be worried that what he is going to judge is going to be like some angry nose flaring um, jerk. He has a heart of compassion and justice. And he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But don't take that to mean justice isn't going to come. These false teachers are doing exactly that. And Peter's saying, no, that's not the story. He seemed to think that this was exactly what these false teachers are missing out on. What they needed to know most is you're not fooling anyone. And most of all, you're not fooling God. You're not getting to do things your own way and just pretend that you have it all together. And, uh, and you can just be a master of your own destiny and figure it out on your own. And, you're gonna, and justice is never coming for you. It's not the way this works. See, what they needed to do was wake up and to realize that despite the brokenness in their world, God is on the move. Reminds me of Aslan and Narnia, right? That, that phrase is used, Aslan is on the move, but I don't see him. Where is he? He's been gone for so long. Is justice ever coming? Aslan's on the move. Our savior Jesus is on the move. He's not sitting idly by. It's not, justice isn't asleep. And so what we get the opportunity to do is participate in this and witness is God through us is redeeming unredeemed spaces, making straight what it is bent, um, bringing pockets of gracious justice into the world wherever we go. Not so that we hold up condemnation and are walking around judging other people. You're not the judge and neither am I. But what we can do is evoke goodness and rightness into our world by being a gospel presence and a gospel voice. That's our opportunity. It's not just our command, it's our opportunity because God is passionately waiting for all those who would come to respond to his voice to come and to drink deeply of his living water. And see, we can trust ultimately that God's gonna handle evil most fully, 
not just because back in Genesis 6, there were some demonic hordes who um, were cast into a prison cell, but because Jesus handled all of this on the cross. On the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent. On the cross, in the darkest eclipsing moment in the history of humanity, when nobody saw what God was doing, when, they, when his followers were like, God must have abandoned him. Who are we following? This doesn't make sense. In that moment, the moment of darkest destruction from everyone else's perspective, God was doing more than we could ever imagine or hope for. He was bringing us back home. And so take heart because God does not let evil win. The cross is our if. And if God handled evil then, then we can trust him for tomorrow. See, there's a day coming when he's gonna stop all the evil forever. And so if you're here tonight and you're kind of feeling weary of planet death and you're like, but why doesn't the brokenness stop? My hope is that this might be a comfort for you. I want to invite the band to come on up. And if you're here and you're in a place where you're like, I've been living as if there is no justice, as if I'm never going to get caught by whoever you're afraid of getting caught. Know this, God is just and compassionate. He isn't peering at us, trying to weird us out, trying to simply scowl at us. He wants us to live in justness, to live in his righteousness. Not one of our own goodness, not one of our own making, but one that he has already paid for. And so my simple encouragement for us is gonna be this. I'm gonna ask us to take a few minutes to simply bow our heads in prayer. And what I want you to do is, I'll, I'll close this in prayer, but what I want you to do is just pray in your heart about this. Just take deep breaths and pray over your answers to these two questions. How am I believing or living as if God's justice is never coming? Is there a space of sinful rebellion in my own heart? Is there something that I am doing that's twisted that the Spirit is exposing me to right now? Is there a weariness to your soul, to your soul that struggles to believe that God even cares? Would you, with me right now, take these things in confession before God for, for a minute? Just process this with Him. come from different places. We all have different stories. 
different visions of who you are and what you're about. When we hear of your justice, we have different things that come to our imaginations. For some of us, we don't follow you. We're still trying to figure out what we think about Jesus. For some of us, these are some of our biggest hangups in the faith. But God, why? What am I supposed to make of you? Being truly good and truly great, and yet our world, me, how do you deal with that? Lord, I, I personally confess that those are all the questions I ask all the things I would love a clear-cut answer to, something that is black and white, something that's easy to understand, something that's, that's easy to digest. But Lord, what we get more than how this all works out is why. Because the scriptures tell us that this entire story has led us not to our own satisfaction or our own delight, but to Jesus high and lifted up, exalted at the right hand of the Father, and one day returning to bring evil to end, to bring justice. And so, Lord, even though I know that for all of us, we can't fully comprehend what this means or what this looks like, what we do know is that Jesus is good. And if we struggle to believe that, Lord, help us with our unbelief us near to you. Help us to drink deeply of Jesus. So we worship you tonight because you are worth all the praise and the glory, whether we understand it 